Welcome to Legal Tips, a podcast series from the Tort Trial and Insurance Practice Section of the American Bar Association, also known as TIPS. As leaders in trial practice and issues of justice involving tort and insurance law, TIPS brings together plaintiffs, defense, corporate, and in-house counsel to tackle issues confronting the legal profession. Legal Tips is designed to present you with a balanced discussion of thought-provoking issues and suggest creative approaches and solutions to problems that arise in the practice of tort and insurance law. This is the first of a two-part program where we take a closer look at lawyers and emergency management. Post-Katrina, there was widespread criticism of insurance systems, particularly because of litigation involving wind, water, and storm surge issues. TIPS established the Task Force on Disaster Insurance Coverage to make recommendations on these and other complex issues, utilizing experts ranging from the government, the insurance industry, and the private bar. For the first segment of this two-part program, we are joined by Task Force Chair Leo J. Jordan. This is Barbara Gislason, today's host. I'm a Minneapolis attorney, TIPS liaison to the ABA Committee on Disaster Preparedness and Response, and CHIPS Chair-elect of the IP Committee. Our guest, as I said before, is Leo Jordan. And if you have been a member of TIPS for a long time, you know that not only is he the past chair of this 40,000-member organization, but when there is a task that is impossible, he is a man or the person who is asked to step up and solve a problem. At the time of Hurricane Katrina, everyone knows there were insurance problems. Leo Jordan was the one who was asked to get together the necessary people to solve it. It's an incredible task. And Leo, as I understand it, you have a seven-part resolution that is pending today uh, for an upcoming vote before the American Bar Association House of Delegates. What I'd like you to help our listening audience do is understand the nature of the problem, and then we'll go into the seven steps of the resolution. I'd like you to begin as somebody with familiarity in the insurance industry and help the audience capture what you thought as somebody from the insurance side of the business after Hurricane Katrina in terms of the legal insurance issues. Well, Barbara, those of us who were sort of spectators with uh, Hurricane Katrina which occurred in in November of 2005, which is uh, becoming quite a, an aged issue at this point, we became very concerned there was an awful lot of litigation that was developing over the claims that, that surfaced during Hurricane Katrina. I know this is dated a little bit, Leo, but how much litigation was there? 
Well, I don't know exactly how much there was, but normally when you see uh, a tornado or you see a major windstorm, hailstorm throughout the Midwest or anywhere else, uh, the insurance industry goes out immediately uh, with their catastrophe crews and adjust those claims. And essentially, you almost never hear of litigation during a, a hailstorm or a windstorm. Leo, I'm going to take you back a little bit before I began the question. Before Hurricane Katrina, in your average flood, how did the insurance coverage work? Well, normally, well, why don't we just sort of center on a home insurance at the moment? And uh, when a person buys a home insurance policy uh, from a private insurance company, they buy what's called a homeowner's policy. And essentially, it's sold on the basis of all-risk coverage. And essentially, that means that if there is an accidental loss to the property, that loss is covered except if there are exclusions that apply. It's a very complex contract. The insurance policy, as one tries to review it, is almost impossible to understand for anybody who does not have a great deal of education, not only in the law, but in the insurance concepts as well. So you start with the concept that it's a very difficult policy. So people understand, well, I have some coverage, and if anything serious happens to my home, I assume that I will have coverage. Uh, When you move to a hurricane, you expect if the wind blows and your house gets knocked over, that essentially that the insurance company will offer protection. But when it comes to a hurricane, as distinguished from a windstorm or hailstorm, you have two basic components of a hurricane. You have wind and you have water. If you are with a private insurance company, that company will pay for the damage that's caused by wind. It will not pay for the damage that's caused by water. Oftentimes, uh, it's, it's fairly simple to determine whether the damage is wind or whether the damage is water. But if it's combined, and, and I think the best example is after the hurricane is over, all that's left is a concrete slab foundation. And no one knows what caused the problem. No one was around Everyone was evacuated, and now you have a simple slab, and uh, we're trying to determine whether there's coverage or not. Leo, why doesn't flood insurance cover for the water? Uh, The insurance industry had determined some time ago, actually in the late 60s, that flood insurance was an uninsurable risk, that that was just not insurable in the private insurance industry. So consequently, the federal government in, in the late 60s enacted legislation setting up the National Flood Insurance Program, which was to provide flood insurance in high hazard flood areas across the country. The amount of coverage provided under the National Flood Insurance Program is $250,000 maximum coverage for a building and $100,000 for the contents or personal property in the building. So there is flood coverage for this, but the reality is that the flood coverage has never, ever reached its potential, that the amount of uh, coverage that should have been available has just not been purchased. 
even though there is a requirement that if you live in a flood hazard zone and you take out a mortgage, which is either guaranteed or even purchased by the federal government, you're supposed to buy flood insurance. But that has never really been enforced at a very high level. So consequently, many, many people uh, who are in flood hazard areas do not have the protection. Those who were wise enough to buy it have protection of only $250,000. So on the one hand, you do have flood insurance from the federal government to some extent. On the other hand, you have the wind protection from your private insurers. And in many instances, the separation or the allocation works out okay. But there were 1.75 million cases or claims that surfaced uh, during Hurricane Katrina. And many of those cases, perhaps 95% of them, were resolved uh, within one year. Uh, but uh, leaving 5%, there may be still two or 300,000 cases out there, many of them in litigation today, over this issue of what caused the damage. Was it wind or was it water? So everyone's praying for wind. Everybody's praying for wind. I think a good example, a, a case was just decided uh, just last week by the, it was a Louisiana case that was decided by the uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans. And that case, as simply as I can narrate it at this point, there was a home that had, it did not have flood insurance, but the home had $400,000 worth of insurance coverage on it. After the storm, the adjuster for this insurance company went out, examined the property, and was convinced that the cause was wind. This adjuster then took what's called a proof of loss, which is a actual claim form and that an agreement has been made that the loss is $400,000 and submitted it to the insurance company. The insurance company sat on that for over two months and then, not satisfied with the conclusions of the adjuster, assigned an engineer to this claim. The engineer went out and the engineer completely reversed the findings of the adjuster and said the damage was not caused by wind, but rather it was primarily caused by water. And then the company instructed the adjuster to adjust the claim along the basis of the engineer. So now we have, even within that company, we have a, a, a divided a causation issue. Now, what happens to the policyholder? Well, the policyholder is now offered about half of what they thought they had agreed to. So they go and hire their own engineer. And the new engineer comes back, as you might expect, and says, well, my view, it's wind. And not only is it wind, but it damaged virtually the whole thing. Uh, so now they, they both have engineers. They both have lawyers. And I mentioned earlier that the storm occurred in November of 2005, and here it is, 2009 in February of 2009, the court came back and said, well, how am I to determine whether it's wind or water? I wasn't there. No one was there. I have to go by 
the best credible evidence. And from what I see, the best credible evidence was the adjuster who was there in the first place and said it was $400,000. And that's what I'm going to do. I think that's a reasonable judgment. And my job as, as the court is to determine the credibility of the witnesses. And this adjuster has the best credibility. Leo, is this a good example of your task force saying to itself, what are we going to do to improve the situation with regard to insurance in this country? Well, I think it's a good example of that, but it's also a good example of why does a homeowner have to go through the process of such significant and expensive litigation to resolve a case? I think that's a very good example of that. And I think it's, it was the job of the task force to say, is there another way of trying to divide up this issue of wind versus water so that the policyholder, the general public, is able to uh, have a very uh, more uh, reliance upon their conviction that they do have coverage for this type of, of a catastrophe. With regard to the work of your task force, was there a problem at the onset with regard to federal or state regulation? Well, not only was there a problem in the beginning of the task force, there was a problem all the way through the task force. Those of you who may be familiar with the, the events in Congress, there was a great deal of congressional legislation introduced following Katrina to do many things, to improve the flood insurance program, to have insurers write uh, broad coverage. Uh, so there was a great deal of, of legislation that was introduced uh, at that time. So the problem was that as you look at this, it became clear, at least to the larger companies, that there probably was a need for a more centralized regulatory system. And that meant actually the federal government. Uh, that the idea of 50 states trying to regulate uh, the business of insurance was becoming cumbersome. And if you, re you really wanted uh, a centralized system, the type of system which really is more open to a free market, flexible regulatory system, then you had to turn to the uh, federal government. But this issue is an ongoing issue. It was before our task force. It was not resolved by our task force because the, the, if you come down to it, you'll find out that the large national companies essentially would prefer a regulatory system under the federal government, which be free competition. The smaller companies or more regional companies would prefer that to keep it the way it is, basically. What kind of people serve on your task force and what kinds of groups has your task force talked to to try to problem solve this? The task force, uh, uh, which was set up by the, uh, the chair of TIPS at that point, really was just in accord with every uh, task force or committee that TIPS develops. It's, it, it has to be balanced. And there are essentially three different groups within our, uh, our organization. Those are defense counsel. Those are insurance lawyers. When I say insurance lawyers, I mean in-house corporate counsel. And there are plaintiff's counsel. So we, our task force was composed uh, of that group. But in addition, 
uh, we went outside and asked other people to join the task force, at least on an ex officio basis, because many of these others were not members of the American Bar Association, but they did have an awful lot to offer. Uh, so we actually set up uh, an ex officio group composed of of uh, specialized industry people, people from uh, from outside public interest groups to come in and talk to us about what their needs were. We met uh, in various parts of the country. We went down to Florida. We met with the uh, uh, regulatory officials in Florida. We uh, met in Washington several times uh, with the Federal Insurance Administrator, with several members of Congress, with the staff of the members of Congress, and met with insurance agents, met with people who were affected by the storm. So we felt and the, that... And that was both low income and high income, right? Both low income and high income. And I'm glad you brought that up because one of the charges to the uh, task force was that not only should uh, insurance be available, but it should be affordable as well. And those were uh, sort of not easy uh, premises to establish, but I think we always had them in mind that whatever solutions we tried to come up with, uh, we had to strike a balance between availability and affordability. Mr. Jordan, can you begin to tell us about the resolutions that your task force developed? And I understand there are seven and they are related to each other. There are seven, and and, uh, several of them uh, might appear to overlap a little bit, but essentially the core of our recommendations is the first is that we are hoping, or we are actually asking the House of Delegates to approve a recommendation that would say essentially that Congress should enact legislation that would make it easier for insurance companies to write both wind coverage and uh, what we would call uh, a form of flood coverage or surge coverage. Uh, uh, Perhaps a a little better way or or an easier way to say that, or perhaps a more clear way, would to say we wanted to provide broadened hurricane coverage. That That was our core recommendation. At the risk of being simplistic, Leo, why does anyone listen to the ABA? Uh, that's always a very good question, but I, I think you have to find that uh, ABA has a Washington staff in the Government Affairs Office that follows federal legislation, that takes the recommendations of the ABA House of Delegates, and actually pursues those recommendations and the public policy that's developed by the ABA. So it actually, when when the House of Delegates enacts uh, a resolution or a recommendation, it then proceeds to become the responsibility of the American Bar Association Government Affairs Office to uh, work with Congress to get that done. Isn't there, in fact, a special day that everyone comes to Congress? Oh, uh, uh, yes. Every year we have, and we've had for perhaps 10 years now, what's called ABA Day, where the leadership of the uh, American Bar Association and the sections, as well as state uh, state bars associations. Usually it occurs in April or May of each year, 
And we go to Washington and we uh, have several priority issues that we want to discuss at that point. And one of the key issues always is, uh, is to try to get sufficient funding for Legal Services Corporation. And we, and we try very hard to do that. But at the same time, we have all of these parallel or concurrent issues that the sections have that we want to bring to the attention of the members of Congress or key congressional committees. So if your first resolution were were endorsed by the American Bar Association, that would be one of the things that would happen on ABA Day. They would carry that message. That's true. That's exactly true. So is there anything else important that we should know about the first resolution? Well, I think it's, it's really sort of a bilateral resolution. We're saying, or we are recommending, that insurers be given the tools to offer broaden hurricane coverage. That means wind and the storm surge. Uh, And to do that, they need to have a regulatory system that's broad, uh, with broad flexibility. And the flexibility should be in terms of both pricing and product. And and we think that's, uh, that's essential. That's a basic issue that if you're going to ask insurers to take on this responsibility, then they have to also have the ability to innovate with both price and product. And when you talk about pricing, Leo, you're talking about actuarial standards, correct? That's correct, right. So, but, uh, but when you talk about actuarial standards, you, uh, an actuarial standard determines what the risk, the price is, but the competitive marketplace is the ultimate uh, uh, determining, determining factor as to what that price will be. But one of the goals of the of the task force is to figure out a real the real value. Correct. That's correct. Explain mm-hmm. that a little more. Actually, you're trying to establish the actual value of the risk. If it's a home, and if it's a home located in the middle of Iowa, and uh, that price is going to be significantly different than a home located uh, in Florida on the on the coast that with heavily exposed, uh, an insurer is going to look at at both of those and decide, well, we can write the home in Iowa maybe for $50, and maybe we're going to need $2,000, for example, to write the home in Florida, because uh, you look at both the severity of the problem if, if uh, a catastrophe occurs in Florida, uh, as well as the frequency of how often that happens. And those are the determining factors of an actuarial analysis for pricing. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about your next resolution? Uh, yes. Um, following up with the core resolution of trying to provide a broad hurricane coverage, we then moved on to an examination of the National Flood ins- Insurance Program itself. And uh, first thing we, uh, we suggested there, but that program itself should be put on a sound actuarial basis itself. Uh, for example, this time, the National Flood Insurance Program had a deficit of $17 billion. Did you say billion? $17 billion. And they have, when that happens, they have to go back to Congress to get an appropriation to pay 
to pay that deficit in the money they have. Normally, the National Flood Program brings in about uh, $2 billion a year in premiums, and that's enough to handle the spring floods of the Mississippi or Illinois River. But when you have a major hurricane, uh, they're not able to uh, set funds aside. Uh, And moreover, the premiums that they charge have been so discounted over the years as a result of political uh, efforts at that point to keep the prices low, that if this program is ever going to be successful, it has to be put on a sound actuarial basis. But that brings up the issue of affordability, that if, if you put it on a sound actuarial basis, then it's not going to be affordable to some people. So our task force suggested, well, you have to price it right. You have to price what the risk involved is. But if there is a component of persons who are unable to pay that price, then it's up to government to provide some type of individual subsidy to those people rather than an overall subsidy for the entire market. So if, in effect, you're shifting that responsibility from the private industry to the government, if the, the government's going to handle the political part of that. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Mm-hmm. What's the next resolution? The next resolution uh, is what we determined, uh, what we characterize as catastrophe-linked securities. For those uh, not entirely familiar with the insurance system, uh, for example, the total cost of insurance for Hurricane Katrina was about $41 billion. That was the insurance cost. But 45% of that $41 billion was reinsured with what they call reinsurance companies or the reinsurance market, which is spread all over the world. Often we hear of London reinsurers, but 45% of that was actually paid uh, by reinsurers. And these, these reinsurers pay no taxes and they're not regulated, correct? In some areas, they have to pay taxes, but they're essentially not regulated. So I think your, your premise is essentially correct. But there is a limited amount of reinsurance available throughout the world. And these catastrophe-linked securities, it was felt that outside of the reinsurance business, there's a great deal of capital available. So they, they decided that why not permit the the infusion of capital from the private market to assist beyond the concept of uh, private reinsurers to have this additional source of uh, income for insurers. And right now, uh, Capital Link Securities provides about $7 billion a year in, in insurance protection above the reinsurance level. As I understand it, another idea of your task force, which is thinking outside the box, is basically the idea of a catastrophic security or bond. Can you tell us about that? Well, that's essentially what we have just described is the uh, catastrophic bond. And I guess the, a good way to say it, if an insurance company has bought reinsurance from the London market, we say, for $10 billion, it bought $10 billion worth of reinsurance, but it needs more, it would go to the capital market, for example, and try to purchase maybe $2 billion worth of this catastrophe-linked security, and it would do this through the capital market. It would be an additional source of funding beyond reinsurance. So, it, in summary, Mr. Jordan, with regard to the goals of your task force, do you think that if the ABA adopts the recommendations that some problems will be solved? Oh, I certainly do. Uh, some of those problems will be short-term. 
uh, the solutions will be short term and some will be over a long term. And we're sort of looking at the whole thing as perhaps maybe a, a 10 year initial period. And in order to, as I mentioned earlier, the two basic concepts that we had was to reduce litigation and to persuade insurers to move back into these high-risk areas. And in order to get them to move back in, uh, there would have to be uh, uh, policy decisions made as to land use developments. Where can developers actually build? Can they build right on the seacoast? Should the homes that are there now be retrofitted to provide uh, a greater resistance to catastrophes. Those are areas that are more of a long-term, and I, I guess we're saying if, in fact, these occurred, they by themselves will persuade insurers to return to that market. For those listening to this program who want to track what's happening with regard to your task force and also learn more about the ever-changing landscape with regard to insurance regulation, where would you recommend they go? Well, I think basically the uh, uh, right now the uh, the task force itself has a website. Uh, the task force on disaster insurance has a website within the uh, within the American Bar Association. But I think they should also follow very closely some of the very active uh, legislation that's going on in Congress uh, to affect the same goals. Mm-hmm. Mr. Jordan, we can see you have more work to do. 10 years at least. But we thank you so much for letting us know what's happening on this very important subject. We ask our listening audience to go to www.abanet.org slash tips and find out more about the important work of this task force. Thank you so much. Okay. On February 16, 2009, the ABA House of Delegates approved the seven recommendations proposed by the ABA TIPS Task Force on Disaster Insurance Coverage, and the recommendations are now the official public policy of the American Bar Association. Thanks for listening to this edition of Legal Tips. We hope you listen to the rest of this special series brought to you by the Tort Trial and Insurance Practice Section of the American Bar Association. Legal Tips is produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network.